If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we're going to be week two of our series, Love Lies. Uh, this is the only series in the history of City Church that we have done now a total of three times. Uh, every three or four years, we bring it back, not only because it's popularity, but because of it's just, just needed. It's necessary. Um, this is cultural lies we believe about love, sex, marriage, and singleness. And uh, it's, it's something that you already know this, but we get so easily pulled into cultural values, things that we grow up hearing, things that are reinforced around us from commercials to things that are written to news. And so we get, we get sucked into this and begin to believe these cultural values. And so this is a time in these important topics of love, sex, marriage, and singleness that we get to come back and say, what does a biblical worldview look like? How do we stand sometimes as followers of Jesus um, Stand true to what God says about this. Uh, on your phone, not only are talk notes, if you want to follow along on cc.guide at the top, there's also Love Lies resources. We understand that we're going we're gonna to cover so many topics in this series, and, and we kind of only get to hit the surface of, of all of them because we only have about 25, 30 minutes to dive into it. So we, we want to resource you with other books, resources, counseling centers, opportunities to meet with a pastor. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you're in crisis. Uh, maybe you just want to know more. Uh, during COVID quarantine lockdown, I, I went through an eight, uh, see, it was like seven to eight weeks Christian worldview class. I talked about postmodernism, sexuality, uh, the body. I, I deal with LGBTQ issues, uh, abortion, you name it. I go into depth in that. All of that is accessible to you online. You can check it all out if you want to know more about those things. We understand that we can't dive into every topic on a Sunday, but that's available to you. This sermon this morning that I want to preach uh, some of the times these, these messages, you're going to think to yourself, well, this one doesn't apply to me, Pastor. Uh, that applies to somebody else. You are a part of the family of God. You are a part of something bigger than yourself. And this is a message this morning that needs to be preached in, in, in all churches. But sometimes you'll attend a church forever and never hear this message preached. So even if you're like, this doesn't directly affect me, it does because you're a part of something bigger than yourself. Uh, if you grew up in the 1990s, the 1990s, if, if you're, if you're a, a kid of the 90s, if you're maybe 30, 40 years old in the room, it, it was the best decade for romantic comedies. Come on now. Anybody, like, the romantic comedies today are just, they stink. They're horrible. We grew up in a time of like, you've got mail, sleepless in Seattle, 10 things I hate about you. Come on now. Right? Like really good stuff. Not the ones you get today. Sorry. There's a, you know, there's a few things that we had better. One of the movies that was probably the biggest romantic comedy of the 90s, honestly wasn't my favorite, but I watched it, was a movie called Jerry Maguire. Anybody see that one? Yeah, you remember that one. And don't act like I'm going to spoil it for you. It's been out for like 30 years. Come on. <laughs> right? Tom Cruise, young Tom Cruise, Renee Zellweger, Cuba Gooding Jr. He's a sports, uh, let's see, like he's a sports, what is he, agent of some, some sort, and falls in love with this woman named Dorothy, and then every romantic comedy, you know, it all kind of hits the fan, and then all of a sudden, it's like they come back together. This last scene, and some of you remember this last scene, it was like one of the most popular romantic comedy scenes of all times, where he walks into the room, and it's full of people, and he looks at Dorothy, and he's telling her that he loves her, and he wants her back, and then he says the line that you all know, you some of you are ahead of me. You're talking the second one. He says, you complete me, right? Does anybody remember that? And then she looks across the way and she's, she's like, you had me at hello, right? And everybody's just like, oh, this is just the greatest moment ever. No, it's a reinforced lie is what it is. <laughs> and I think that lie has come to like define all this like romantic understanding that we live in, right? 
It's like somehow I'm incomplete and I need you to fulfill what is lacking inside of me. And it, it, it's something, I mean, every, I think Pastor Rachel said this last week, every Disney movie is the same type of theme. You, mince, you meet Prince Charming, you meet the love of your life, you, you ride into the sunset and everything is perfect, right? There's a reason they don't do the second version of these romantic comedies where Jerry Maguire screws up again, you know? <laughs> because it's not perfect. You can find the person that is completely compatible for you and guess what? You don't ride into the sunset in perfection. That's not reality, is it? But we get these lies reinforced over and over again. And, and so what it makes us do is we begin to look and say, my life is incomplete or lacking until I fill in the blank. And a lot of times it's until I find him or her. And then I'll be fulfilled. The lie we're dealing with today is that marriage is greater than singleness. Come on now, single people in the room, this is your moment. <laughs> that singleness is a second tier life. It's God's plan B for you. That your life is incomplete until you find your spouse or in a relationship. And we're really blessed in that when we talk about texts, many of you already had me this morning, we get to go to 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul actually talks about this. Where he, where he dives into what it means, the complexity of this. Now, anytime we're reading a Pauline letter, there's work to be done. And a lot of people, how many know, don't want to do the work to, good, to get to good biblical interpretation, good biblical exegesis. They don't want to do the work because it requires work. So what we do is we go to the text to find what we already want to say, or we just assume what it says. But here's what I would have you to do, especially in Pauline letters. Go find a good uh, study Bible. Even the, the very beginning of every book of the Bible, especially in Pauline letter, it gives you an overview. Who is Paul writing to? Why is Paul writing to them? What is the situation surrounding the church in Corinth? Why would Paul write one letter and then have to write a second letter defending himself in the second letter from the first letter because these so-called super apostles and false teachers had infiltrated the church and now Paul says, like, I have to defend myself in 2 Corinthians. Why are they writing? Because guess what? You and I value different things today than Paul did then. It's a different culture. They don't think like we think. It's a 2,000-year gap. So for us to understand what's happening, we have to go back and understand what was Paul doing? What was the situation? What was the culture like? Once we do that work, then we can interpret the text properly for our lives today, right? How many know that, that takes work? People don't want to, we don't want to do work. We want to read the text and many times we formulate our ideas to say what we want to say. And this is one of those instances that takes some work. It takes a little bit of work. Let me give you some overview of Paul's perspective that's going to help us understand the text this morning. What is, what is he dealing with? Number one is Paul is dealing with something that he's developed called eminent eschatology. And I know it sounds like a big theological word. It just means in Paul's thinking, Christ is, was returning any moment. Any moment. Now this may be like a little bit whiplash for you, but Paul, we see the development of Paul's theology even as he writes letters. That doesn't mean he got it wrong. That means his theology was developing. Let me give you an example of this. First Thessalonians, Paul thinks Jesus is coming back any moment. In fact, he's like, we won't even be here. Don't worry about your present sufferings. Christ is going to return any moment. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul actually corrects himself from 1 Corinthians to be like, hey, guess what? It may, it may be a while. I don't know. So you may have to suffer. You may even pass from this life into the next. But guess what? God will still return for his people. There's still eternity for us. And so Paul is developing how many, I think it would be good if we all lived with an eminent eschatology, like Christ could return any moment. That is what's driving Paul's letters here. Paul's like, we don't have time 
to twiddle our thumbs. We don't have time to like get distracted. There's no time for us to to get involved in these, these things that just don't matter because Christ is coming. People are lost. They need to hear the gospel. We have a job to do. Like you couldn't have been around Paul and just been like, "Mm, I think I'm going to opt out of mission. Nope, there's none of that. You as a follower of Jesus have a calling. And so he's living with this eminent eschatology and you see it here in 1 Corinthians in the text we're going to read. The second thing is this, Paul understands the purpose of marriage is to help each other reflect Christ. It's not what we've made marriage today, right? I mean, think about this, read Ephesians chapter 5. This submission to one another and submission to Jesus is because the, the purpose of marriage is to help us to become more like Christ, to help Christ and Jesus become alive in our hearts. Is that the reason most people get married today? No, it's not. They're lacking in something and they say, if I can get married, then I can fulfill what is lacking. And guess what? You can't fulfill what's lacking in marriage. That's a burden your spouse cannot ever fill in your life. No, no, Paul is saying that's not the purpose. And in fact, it was a whole different culture. We live in a dating, commercial, uh, a dating uh, culture today. People are, will date for a long time. They'll be engaged for years. And that, that wasn't the culture then, was it? It was mostly arranged marriages, that marriage had a purpose. And it was to raise up heirs and descendants. And, and, and Paul's saying it was to help each other to look like Jesus. And so it's different than what we're living in today. It looks different. Marriage here is to point us to our ultimate marriage with Christ in the future kingdom. What would change about our marriages today if we saw the purpose of marriage to reflect Christ in each other, right? Instead of trying to find someone to fulfill us. I've been doing premarital counseling now for 15 years. We do so much premarital and postmarital counseling. And one of the questions I get asked all the time is when I'm looking for a spouse and looking for marriage, and I know this is a message about singleness. We'll get back there in a second. But for all you married people in the room or looking to get married, what's the number one criteria? I say this to people all the time. It's finding someone who, who knows their identity in Christ. There's not a, number, a close number two. Do they know who they are in Christ? Or are they looking for fulfillment in this relationship, marriage, or you? Because if they're looking for fulfillment in you, I, I guarantee you, you're going to have to address that down the road. I didn't get everything right in life, but let me tell you one thing I did get right. I married someone who absolutely knew who they were in Christ. In fact, she knew so much who she was in Christ. There were times where I was like, I would really like for you to need me more. <laughs> I don't want to be your savior, but could you at least like give me a little bit more attention? And she's like, nope, I'm going to do this. I'm going to fulfill the call of God in my life regardless of you. And I'm like, well, I guess that's sexy. I don't know. <laughs> But really what it was is I had found someone who didn't need me to fulfill her. Praise God. I didn't know how lucky I was then that I, that I found someone that knew who they were and that I didn't, I didn't have to be like, oh, well, come along with me. You know, let's, let's do this ministry thing and, and have to kind of drag them. She knew who she was. Do you know your identity in Christ? Because the purpose of marriage is to help us to become more like Jesus. A couple other things to help us understand 1 Corinthians 7. In regards to singleness, Christianity is a revolutionary movement. What's happening in 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 7 is revolutionary. Christianity is the first major religion to hold up single adulthood as a viable way of life. That was not a thing. It wasn't celebrated. All other major religions, including Judaism, which is the background of the foundation for the Christian movement and the life of Jesus in the new covenant, there was no honor without family. There was no lasting legacy without an heir. Their hope for the future was in their children. 
This is like, even go back to Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15. This is why Abraham is like, I'm passing on my estate to a slave. And like, God, why will you not provide for us? And Sarah is barren. And this is why he's crying out because his legacy and everything that he was building his life on is up to an heir. And in the New Testament, in the early church, you see this transition and change. We're now single adulthood is a viable way of life. We go on to this, if you're taking notes, the Christian gospel and the hope of the future kingdom actually de-idolized marriage. The Christian gospel and the hope of the future kingdom de-idolized marriage. Marriage was, was elevated among people as this ultimate goal. And what Christianity looks and says, guess what? It's a great thing, but it's not the only thing. It's a great way, but it's not the only way. It may be your gift, but it doesn't have to be everyone's gift. How do we know this? Well, the founder of Christianity, Jesus, was single. The leading theologian of Christianity in the first century, Paul the Apostle, was single. I don't any of us are sitting around wondering and debating the legacy of Paul the Apostle and Jesus Christ because they weren't married or had heirs, are we? And it was a new revolutionary way of seeing the world. In fact, it changed how the church began to operate. So let me give you an example of this. The church uh, before this, or the people of God, or even Judaism in a whole, if you were a widow, you couldn't provide for yourself because there just wasn't a way for you to make money. And so they would get remarried quickly because that was the only way that they could provide. The early church began to, began to look at widows and say, guess what? We'll provide for you financially because if you want to stay single, that's a viable way of life. We'll pay for you, right? So you don't have to move into marriage if you don't want to. You're not, you're not forced into scenarios. You can live single and we'll provide for you. It began to change the way the church would operate. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, let's dive in. Paul is saying this, I wish that all of you were as single as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is revolutionary stuff in Paul's time here. Revolutionary stuff. And and again, looking this through the lens of eminent eschatology, Paul saw everything he would do through the life of living missionally and going uh, to, to, to preach the gospel. But still, revolutionary stuff. Verse 17, let's skip down. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. Just as God has what? Has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all churches. I'm gonna give you five things this morning uh, about singleness. The, the, The number one thing is this, singleness is a gift. Paul says it's a gift. Marriage can be a gift, but singleness is also a gift. And this is a revolutionary idea for many of you feel like you've been living under the curse of singleness. Come on now. Some of you are rejecting the gift that God has given you in this season of your life, whether singleness is only for a season or whether singleness is the rest of your life. You've been rejecting the gift that God has given you. Let me tell you one thing that is consistent in Pauline literature. Every time he talks about the gifts of the Spirit or different gifts, whether it's Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, gifts are never simply for your benefit. They're always for the benefit of others as well. That means God's not calling you to sit on your gift of singleness and say, well, you know what? This is just for me. No, your gift is to be used to build up this body of Christ. You have something this family of God needs. It's indispensable. 
And somebody, maybe you've never heard that before. Nobody's ever told you that your gift of singleness is necessary and needed for the body of Christ to grow into maturity. But guess what? You can't sit on your gift. You can't wallow around and stop in a season of life because it may not look like what you want it to look like and say, I'm not going to use my gift. If you're a 35-year-old single woman, what gift has God given you to use in that context? Mentor other women. Use your gift for the body of Christ. Whether your gift is hospitality and holding open doors or it's leadership and teaching, it doesn't matter where it is. Are you using it? Because guess what? Let me tell you, in the life of Paul, he saw his gift of singleness as a true gift. Could he have itinerated around the world starting churches if he'd have been married and had a family? Not if he wanted to be the worst husband or father ever, right? No, that was a gift that God gave him that allowed him to facilitate the ministry that God put in his life to plant churches all around the known world at that time to see a movement of the gospel go forth, amen? It was a gift that God gave him in that season. Number two is this, singleness has its advantages. We just talked about how Paul saw this as an advantage, not something to, to, to sit around and say, well, why did this not happen or why did not that? But it was an advantage in his life to be used for the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 7, 32, let's go a little bit farther. It says this, Paul says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. All the married people in the room, no, don't say that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> don't look to your right or left. Look at me, eye contact. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in, read that with me, in undivided devotion to the Lord. If, if we were sitting with Paul, this is just my take on it. I, I think Paul has opinions. Did you know that? Like everybody else, everybody has an opinion today. I think Paul had opinions. I think you see some of his opinion here. I think it's coming out in the text. He's like, yeah, there's a gift of marriage if you really want to go down that route. You know, seems like a burden to me. This gift of singleness, <laughs> I just, it's kind of how you have to read it, right? And part of it is his imminent eschatology and the purpose and the time is short and it's coming out in the text. But he's telling you here, he's like, there's something about it. It's this undivided devotion to the Lord. Look at my life. Look at the flexibility that it's given me in order to do the things that God has called me to do. Single people, you have an opportunity to live in undivided devotion to the Lord. What if your calling to live missionally and glorified God was the driver for every decision that you made and not try to fulfill what was lacking or try to chase what's next? Or how would it change your pursuit of relationships or marriage or any of those things? Number three is this, singleness can be difficult, right? This is super practical, I know. It has its advantages, but it can be difficult. There are moments and seasons of life where single life may feel like a burden, where you feel, may feel lonely or left out or where you know, there's things that are happening and you, and you wish things were different or wish, you wish you could experience this or, or, or that. And there are times where we just have to say it out loud that it may be difficult, which leads us to number four here. Singleness requires relational intimacy. It requires relational intimacy. 
you have heard me say this several times from stage before, but you can live and thrive without sexual intimacy, no matter what the culture may tell you. But you cannot live and thrive without relational intimacy. You weren't created for that. You were knit together when God breathed life into Adam. We are formed in the image of God from the relational nature of the Trinity in perfect relationship with others. We are formed for relationships. It is in your DNA. It is how you are created. And you cannot thrive without relational intimacy with others. This is not in the message. This is not in the notes. I'm wondering if I should go there. You want to know another cultural myth or lie? that if you're gonna experience deep relational intimacy with somebody, you have to experience sexual intimacy with them for it to be real. What a myth. What a lie straight from the pit of hell that says it has to be sexual in order to be real. No, there are people who are living abstinent lives, glorifying God with their life all over the world today, who are walking in relational intimacy with other people, who the family of God is not just a church they attend, but it is their family. Amen? It is people they rely on. It is people that they lean on and they go to, that you are family. I think this has to challenge us, church. Have we, the church, the family of God, created safe places for our single family members to thrive among us? I'm going to say that again. Have we, the church, the family of God, have we married people in the room, created safe places for our single family members to thrive? to not feel second tier, not feel like they're left out, not feel like we're just pursuing other married couples? Have we created these spaces? You cannot thrive without relational intimacy. I think there are times where people in the church, especially singles, feel like, well, I, I came to this place because I really needed family, but I, I, I feel like I, I may not fit. I don't really have a spot. I, I feel like it's, it's people who would just have kids over here or married, and where is my place in this? Have we gone to them and created avenues for our single family members within the church to thrive. Number five is this, last one. Singleness is a testimony to the full sufficiency of Christ. This is my favorite one. Singleness is a testimony to the full sufficiency of Christ. That singleness is not second tier or plan B. That Christ and only Christ is enough to satisfy your life, amen? And there are some people that have to get married in order to test if, if Christ is really enough. If Christ was not enough as a single person, Christ will not be enough for you as a married person. Amen? Marriage does not fix things. It doesn't make things go away. It reveals what is already there or not there. I love what Rachel Gilson says in her book, uh, Born Again This Way. What a beautifully crafted book that she wrote. She says, single Christians communicate that a truer marriage is coming and that they are willing to bet their life on it. They communicate that the church really is family and capable of providing the intimacy of relationships necessary for a person to thrive. Isn't that beautiful? You, single people who are called to be single, you are pointing to a truer and better marriage that we are all waiting on. That Christ is the only spouse that can truly fulfill us and God's family is the only family that can satisfy our deepest need and longing for relationships and community. Do we really believe that? And do we live that way? Are we communicating a truer marriage is coming? Let me address a, a couple groups of people this morning and challenge us as, as we as, we, as we've kind of dived into this topic a little bit, 
um, all the topics we're going to cover in this series. It may not hit the middle of the bullseye for you, but you need to hear the message. Amen? Last week, if you were here, Pastor Rachel, amazing job talking about the covenant. Love is a feeling. If you were not here, if you are married or you want to be married or one day you desire that, you better go back to listen to next week's message. If you're married in the room this morning, you need to hear this, mer- this, this message because we need to hear messages about other family members in the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. If you're a single follower of Jesus in this room this morning, you are bearing testimony that Jesus, not marriage or children, is your hope. Christ will fulfill your ever longing and give you a family that you're never lacking brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers. Singles, you must learn to rest and rejoice in your marriage to Christ without a sense of being unfulfilled or missing out. You have to learn to rest in the full sufficiency of Jesus, that you don't chase marriage or relationship for for fulfillment, but you lean into the family of God. So just a minute ago, I challenged the rest of our family to create safe places. Let me say this to you, singles. You have to lean into the family of God. If you ever come to dinner with the staff, if you join us tomorrow night, I'll probably say the same thing. Everybody wants to be a part of family. Nobody wants to do what it takes to be a family. Because how many know it requires sacrifice and time? Your church does not become family because you show up on Sunday. It becomes family when you walk into a micro church, when you start serving together, when you work through conflict together. Come on now, amen. That's when it gets real when it creates depth, when you show up to Love Tulsa Sunday, when you don't know anybody, but you begin to serve and meet people, when you get outside your comfort zone and you, you go to somebody that you don't know, when you show up for things and, 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 and you, this is when church becomes family. We've adopted church culture in America in 2022 where it's like, I come in on Sunday, I listen to a message, I leave back out, I may say, somebody, say hi to somebody, a greeter on the door, and we wonder why we're not family because that's impossible, right? Just call it like it is. You've got to lean in. If you want this to begin to feel like family, you have to show up consistently and put yourself in places for it to be family. Let me talk to those who are single but desire to be married. Are you embracing the gift that God has given you in this season? Will you embrace the gift that God has given you right now? Have you put your life on hold or failed to use your gift to love and serve the body of Christ because you're just waiting? That's not how it works. Become the person God wants you to be before you enter into that relationship. Let me say this for you who are dating and looking. Don't give yourself completely to someone unless you're willing to give all of yourself to someone. People from outside the church who aren't followers of Jesus, they will look at the sexual ethics of the church, the kingdom of God in scripture, and find them restrictive. But it's not. Because it's the way that God designed it. And it's not restrictive, it's actually liberating. It's not slavery. People who are in the world, who are living according to the world culture, they're in slavery. Slavery is bouncing around from sexual relationship to sexual relationship, looking for life and healing and wholeness. That's slavery. You know what freedom it is? Giving yourself one person completely, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and everything, saying, I'm giving all to you. That is freedom. Amen? 
honor God in a way that you're single. For married people in the church, in this room, again, have we created safe places for our single family members? I've done this long enough to know there are so many people that come in the church and I'm not pointing you out and I'm not trying to embarrass you if this is you. And they'll come to me and they're like, Pastor, I'm 27 years old, newly married. I want to be in a micro church with other 27 year olds who are newly married. I get the desire for that. Hey, we're 32. We just had our first child. He's really colicky. Can we be in a micro church with other colicky babies? There's a place for that. Like you just need friends who are in the same season of life. But we do something different around here. We, we challenge ourselves to step out of just demographic specific places. Because if you're a married couple in this room, you need single people in your life. And guess what? Those single people need you. We are so blessed throughout the years to have so many single people in our church that have become like family to us that have taken care of our kids and washed our kids and come over and have been such a joy and, and what they do for the body of Christ, even the flexibility they've had to be able to serve this body and do things that other people can't, it's a gift. We need them. You need us. So instead of looking for people that are just like you, what if you opened your house to someone who is single and maybe when it comes around the holidays, they, they don't know exactly where they're gonna be. How many know... There's a lot of single people in our church that every time the holidays come around, that they're, they're wondering that. Did you know that? Maybe you're an answer to their prayer. Maybe you can create a safe place for them. Maybe we who are married in the church, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we stop making comments that make our single family members feel like they're incomplete without relationship. I've been around the church long enough to know that happens all the time. Oh, this is really great. You're, you're 33. Why? Have you just not met the right one? What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know? You, you ever been there? Super awkward. Like, I just want to be like slowly like back out of the conversation, you know? Maybe we don't put that pressure. We don't assume. We celebrate the season of life they're in. God's calling and gift for them in that time and place. I want to pray for us this morning. I've talked about this. I've never preached a full message on it. Glad we did. I'm going to do something here in a minute, and this is not to embarrass you. If, if, if you do feel embarrassed or uncomfortable, you don't have to respond to this. It's actually the very opposite. I, I want to honor you, and I want to bless you. Um, if you're single in this room, and I know some of you may be like, well, I'm in a, in a relationship, but if you're not in the covenant of marriage with somebody else, maybe you're in an in-between, maybe you um, in a time of divorce or out of divorce, but you're, you're single in the room, I would love for you to stand to your feet this morning and allow me to speak a prayer of plus, a blessing and life over you. If that's you in the room, stand up with me. I want everybody else, as, as I'm praying over them, I want you to pray for this group of people. Not only pray for them, but what's, your responsibility in their lives. This is the great thing about the family of God is it's shared responsibility. When one person carries a burden or a weight, we carry it with them, right? If you're right where you're at, if you just bow your heads and close your eyes, I wanna speak this blessing in life over you. 
I don't know where you're specifically at in your season of life right now. Maybe you've been seeing this as a curse or a burden. I'm gonna pray that you begin to rest in this calling. Whether you're called to be single throughout your life or you're just called in this season and looking for more, I'm gonna pray that you would find such a deep peace that literally when you walk out of these doors, instead of seeing it as something and just a season that you're trying to get through as quickly as possible, that you would embrace what God is doing right here, right now in you the beauty of this gift and season of life. Father, I thank you for every person who's standing in this room. God, I thank you for the beautiful calling that you've placed upon their life. God, we we thank you, God, that we are only completely sufficient in you, God, that you are completely enough for us. We confess today, whether single or married, that you are the only thing that can satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. And even us who are married in the room, we look to a greater and truer marriage in Christ that will truly satisfy every deepest longing of our heart. And I speak that today over every single person here. I bless them, Father. I pray that you would move them into the calling that you have placed upon their life, that they would not look and wait for the right timing or right season, but they would look right where they're at. And an undivided devotion to you, they would walk in that. God, I pray for us in the room who are married, Father. Help us to create a place and a family for these individuals. Help us to get outside of our comfort zone. Father, help us to embrace the diversity of the body of Christ, of people who don't look like us and who are different seasons of us, but, but God, add to the value and the unity of what you are doing in your church. God, we thank you for that. We bless them. I speak life over them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. If everybody would stand to their feet this morning with me, if you would grab your communion elements, we're gonna come to the table this morning. What creates unity among diversity in the body of Christ? what we're about to do next. Because at the end of the day, what brings us together is that we come to the table. We are broken because of sin, but we've been redeemed because of Jesus, amen? And that is enough. That brings unity among the greatest amount of diversity. If you're new to City Church, we practice open communion. That means if you're hungry to experience Jesus, you're welcome to come to the table with us. Maybe you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And as we're about to take the body and the blood of Jesus, you take Jesus as Lord and Savior. Just right where you're at, you pray that prayer. God has been relentlessly pursuing you, loves you endlessly. And we invite you to take him this morning. For the rest of us who are about to partake, it says this, scripture tells us on the night Jesus was betrayed, He gathered around the table with his disciples and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body which has been broken for you. Every time you do this, every time for generations, for thousands of years, as you gather after this moment and you break this bread as the people of God, remember what I've done for you. That I was ripped apart so that you could be put back together and be made whole. That I did it out of my love for you. And he passed the cup around. He said, this is my blood that's been poured out for you. Let me tell you the part that never gets old to me. One day you and I are gonna stand before God 
and judgment will happen. And judgment is not a bad thing. Judgment has to happen for us to live in eternity with our Heavenly Father and for peace to reign. And when God looks at us, he will not see our sin. He will see the blood of Jesus on our lives. Amen. Let's take the body of Christ together. Father, we're thank you. thankful for the cup, the blood of Christ that washes us and cleanses us from our sins. Let's take together. Would you take the next 30 seconds as we always do after communion, just right where you're at, would you just thank God? Just gratitude and thankfulness for what God has done for us. Can we practice that corporately together? Father, we thank you that we were lost. Man, we were lost and confused and could not rescue and save ourselves, but thank you that you sent your son. Thank you that you paid the penalty that we couldn't. Thank you that you've prepared a place for us. Thank you that there will be a wedding feast and a marriage one day that will so far surpass anything we've experienced here and now. We thank you for this church, this family of God, this family of different people who gather together under the banner of Jesus in a world that is so divided and so angry and jumps on every little thing. God, we stand in unity under the banner of Jesus, the love of God, the goodness of God. And let us walk from this place in that unity today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're a first-time guest, I'd love to meet you in the welcome room just across the way, just a few seconds to your time. I'd invite the prayer team to come down. And we, as we end here in just a minute, if, if you just need prayer uh, for something specific, come down and allow one of our prayer teams, if any of our elders in the room, as you, if you would make yourself available as well. And then dinner with the staff tomorrow night. Um, if you're new-ish to City Church, whether you've been coming to six months or a week, we'd love to meet you if you want to know more about how to get connected here and what our family looks like. We'd love to have you tomorrow night join us. Let's stand with our mission statement. Go live it out wherever you are. Be the gospel. Be the gospel.